All right, and we are back for another edition of Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant, joined by my ever-inimitable partner, Brother Kevin Pendergrass, and we are glad to be with all of you once again. And this evening, we will be kicking off a series. Now, we're not going to be doing these sequentially in order, but we are going to be doing a series from time to time where we're going to be going through and discussing the fruits of the Spirit and what they represent. And the reason why we have decided to go through the fruits of the Spirit is because over the course of this podcast, what Kevin and I have effectively done is discuss and work through, for lack of a better term, the deconstruction of the previous system of faith that we ascribed to that was entrenched within legalism. And we have discussed the doctrinal issues and the expressions of that legalism and how we have shifted our perspective and understanding on different doctrinal points and on different topics. And while that's valuable to a lot of people, one of the criticisms, and I think it's a fair criticism that I have personally heard from people, is that we've talked a lot about deconstruction, but we haven't really discussed a lot about reconstructing something in its place. And with a solo episode that I recorded a few weeks ago, Kevin, whenever you were precluded from being on the program for, for various reasons, um, I went into, in the last part, how I began to reconstruct my faith and look at Jesus as the ultimate blueprint that we are to follow. And, you know, we've talked about different things that relate to a blueprint hermeneutic in the past. And I think it was a helpful episode, but one of the things that I, that I thought would be helpful and that you and I have discussed off the air and in private conversations has been how a series on the fruits of the spirit would probably be beneficial for our audience in hearing how that can inform a reconstruction of our faith when we've left legalism behind. Well, what do we do then? Like, how do we move forward and how do we know what ethic to pursue and how do we know even how to read the Bible well in order to to reaffirm our faith in in a much more Christ-like and in a stronger way. And I think the fruits of the Spirit are a really good way to start with that. Yeah, the word deconstructing uh, is almost one of those words that when you change away from legalism, you have to use it at least 100 times a day because that's just... You it's have what to you do. It. <laughs> it is. It's what you're doing. Yeah, and, and it's one of those things where you're constantly reevaluating. What am I doing? Why have I done it this way? What do I need to be doing? And if you're anything like I was when I changed, you begin to be very cautious. Sometimes you start second guessing yourself. Well, if I was wrong before, how do I know that I'm not wrong right now? And what if I make another wrong step or another wrong decision? And then what? And it can be very difficult to know how to pave a way forward in your new faith. And for a lot of people, they they never do that. They deconstruct, but they never quote unquote, reconstruct, and they're left without faith. Uh, and so that's why I think it's so important to talk about, well, what do you do when you do leave behind the quote unquote legalism that we've left behind? Or for other people, whatever it might be, we talk about legalism a lot because that's our background. That's what we came from. But there are all sorts of different ways to deconstruct one's presuppositions. And when they do that, what's next? And Lee, you and I have talked a lot about this. The focus needs to be on Jesus Christ. That's a, a Christocentric approach to the Bible, a Christocentric approach to theology and other people and understanding that I am to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, not in necessarily all the specifics because throughout culture, throughout different situations, those things are going to change. But it's the heart of Jesus. It's the spirit of Jesus that we are to imitate. And I believe that it goes back to understanding the character and the heart of 
of the person. In Matthew 12, 33, even Jesus says, you need to make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is known by its fruit. What Jesus is talking about here is the heart of the person. At the end of the day, you can know someone based upon their character. Someone can look really good on the outside and have all of the religious uh, check marks uh, that they that they are supposed to have by all of these different issues and all of the different uh, quote unquote uh, uh, rules of obedience that they have created for themselves as the scribes and Pharisees. And Lee, that's how you and I live. We, we do yeah. this, we do this, we do this. Those things defined us. You were known as a one cupper. Why? That defined you. Yes. I was known as a guy who didn't use instrumental music, who believed in the you know that we were the only ones going to heaven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Those things, that's what defined me. But the problem is, what really defines a person? And I like to, instead of saying a doctrinal issue, because we never really see that type of phrase used in the Bible. We never see Paul say, well, on doctrinal issues, you have to agree. We never really see that. What we see is the focus is on character. The focus is on how we treat one another, how we love one another, uh, how we show compassion toward one another. And also what our heart is made out of and how we are transforming and conditioning our hearts. And that goes back to the fruit of the Spirit. And I'll just quickly read the fruit of the Spirit because, Lee, as you pointed out, we're not going to we're not going to hit all of these in a row, but we are going to start with love tonight. But Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if Jesus says we're known by our fruit, a tree's known by our fruit, well, what kind of fruit are we to bear? We're to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Well, and, and that right there is, it's an excellent summation of the principles that we are speaking out against on this podcast and why we have shifted in our perspectives. That's why you've shifted in your perspective, I've shifted in mine. Is because we, even though in that moment we didn't have a conscious awareness of it, we have become aware now that the fruit that legalism bears is a bitter fruit. It is not a fruit that lends itself to growth in either a numerical sense within a church, nor is it a fruit that bears growth or that 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 brings about growth on a personal level, on an individual level. And this is a conversation that I had with someone else when they were you know, we had got together, we were having dinner and he's a dear, dear brother in Christ. I love him to pieces. He's one of my favorite people in the world. And, you know, he's, you know, still a faithful member of the one cup church. And I, I have no problem with him at all. No qualms with him. And I'm so thankful that he doesn't have any qualms with me. He still calls me a brother. He's, he's one of my favorite people ever. And one of the things that he asked me is, well, you know, why would you leave that behind? You know, why would you leave, you know, the brotherhood behind if it's something, if one cup is something you can live with, why would you leave it behind? And I said, well, the prevalent and predominant attitude is one of legalistic, ritualistic perfection. And that's how I used to look at things. That's how you used to look at things is that legalism elevates ritualistic precision and perfection above everything else. You have to have all of the right concepts and all of the right precepts and do all of the right things in order to merit God's favor. And that includes the cup. And I said, what fruit has that born? Yeah. Because Jesus says a tree is known by its fruit. You know, Proverbs says a tree is known by its fruit. We understand that. You know what kind of tree that is if you see apples growing on, if you see peaches growing on it or pears or whatever, you know that's what it is. 
well, what kind of fruit has that produced in our churches? And the, the predisposition towards ritualistic perfection, the fruit that it's born has been division after division after division. The fruit that it's born has been animosity between brethren. It has borne the fruit of anguish and angst and, and tension and anxiety between family members and, and within our own minds, anxiety that we have had whenever we begin to realize that maybe I haven't had this right. It has the, the fruit of legalism and ritualistic perfection and precision obedience has borne the fruit of, of anxiety. It has borne the fruit of arrogance. It has borne the fruit of terror on an individual level. And it eventually, if we're honest with ourselves, it eventually bears the fruit of cognitive dissonance, which leads to all those anxieties. And then you become at an impasse. And, and like you've said before, you end up deconstructing and never reconstructing after that. And yeah, in, its, it, in its place, there has to be a better way forward. And we tend to overcomplicate that so much. That ultimate, ultimate ethic presented in Scripture is this first fruit of the Spirit, and that's love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And these fruits of the Spirit enumerate and give us an idea and a concept of what that looks like. Yeah, I think it's important to look at some misconceptions of love because if we were having this same conversation, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago, even six, seven years ago, I would have said, well, yeah, Lee, of, of course we're to bear the fruit of the spirit. But the first thing is love. And the reason why I worship the way I do is because I love God. The reason why I'm telling you, you're going to hell and you need to change your ways is because I love God and I love your soul and I don't want to see you burn in hell forever. And so out of love, the fruit of the spirit, I'm going to correct you. And out of love, I'm going to worship the way that God has prescribed. And that is the, the framework that I understood love through. And so love was actually the way that I had interpreted love at that time. Love was the means by which I felt like my understanding of love, I'll put, I'll, I'll, let me put that little caveat there. My understanding of love is how I could do the things that I, I did, treat the people, treat people the way that I treated them, oftentimes in not so nice ways, because in my mind, well, this is what true love is. True love is, is ripping you from the fires of hell. It's it's saving you from the church that you're a part of that's not the true church. It's saving you from worshiping in a way that's not the way you're supposed to worship. So what would you say to someone who responds in that way, who would agree on a, on a foundational level and say, well, yeah, of course we're to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Lee, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. We, we have to do that. But this is what love looks like in practice. Well, my answer to that, and I, it would be like me arguing with me from six or seven years ago. One of my favorite things that I used to say whenever I would preach about love is I would make the exact same points that you just made, that if you love someone, you tell them the truth about what they need to do to be right before God. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking Ephesians the truth 4, in love. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things that I was really fond of saying is that, you know what? Sometimes love is a left hook. Uh, proverbially speaking, sometimes love means you have to share the unabashed, unadulterated truth with somebody. And to a point, I still believe that's the case. Sometimes there are people that need to hear, look, it, and in my line of work, I see this all the time. There's some people that don't get better because they're carrying around 60 extra pounds on their body. 
And it can be really hard to tell people that have never worked out a day in their life. You know, one of the reasons why you're suffering the way you're suffering is because you're 60 pounds overweight Yeah, and you really need to lose that weight. But there's a big difference in saying, you know, one of the biggest issues for you and one of the reasons why you're not getting better is because you're carrying around some extra weight. And there are some strategies that you can utilize that will help you with that. And I'm here to help you and hold your hand every step of the way. And together, we're going to get you there. We are going to give you what you need to help you accomplish that goal. There's a big difference between saying that and saying the reason why you're not getting better is because you're a fat tub of lard and you're too lazy to get off your lazy butt and go for a walk around the block and quit eating so many Oreos. That's the reason why you can't get better. And there's a big difference between those two things. Well, yeah, I'm speaking the truth in both cases, but in one sense, it's pragmatic, it's direct, and it's straightforward. In the other, I'm, I'm just being a jerk. And a big part of that in terms of our spirituality and in our practice of religion and in our expression of our faith is the way that I used to look at things the way you used to look at things is predicated upon that perspective that precision obedience is the ultimate expression of love towards God. I express my love towards God by singing to him with my voice only and not using an instrument or even clapping my hands and using that built-in percussion instrument that God gave us. You know, I express my love towards God, unlike you, you filthy digressive, by using only one cup in the Lord's Supper. You know, I really love God, so I'm only going to use one cup because that's what he prescribed. Embedded within that ideology is the presupposition that precision obedience is the ultimate expression of love. And yeah. the way that I would answer that now is by saying exactly that. Well, you're presupposing that precision obedience is that expression of love, but there's enough in Scripture that turns that on its head. You know, you look at, you know, for every time, and we've talked about this over and over again, for every Nadab and Abihu who got it wrong, you have an El and were destroyed. You have an Eliezer and Ithamar that got it wrong and weren't destroyed. You know, for every Uzzah, you have King Hezekiah's Passover. You know, for every, you know, for every person who was ultimately destroyed because of their lack, for the young prophet who listened to the old prophet and didn't heed the voice of God and who was, who died on his way home, you have the woman caught in adultery who was shown mercy and told to go and sin no more. Yeah. So the way that I would answer that is I would say, well, your predilection on love presupposes that this is what love is. But according to what I see in scripture, that's not what love is. Because if we, if we look at scripture and we see what love is, one of the things that we see is, is that love is that highest ethic that's enumerated in scripture. The whole law and the prophets hangs on love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, I think about what, what John says, you know, in first John one and six and seven, one of my favorite things to say whenever I was still entrenched in legalism would be to quote verse seven. After verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I would say, you know what, Kevin, that's pretty straightforward right there. We walk in darkness. We yeah. walk in darkness if we don't practice the truth. And what's the truth? It's this set of principles and concepts and doctrines that we must do in a right manner before God. And that was one of the proof texts that I would use. But John goes on to tell us what walking in the light is in the next chapter. In, in verses 9 through 11 in 1 John 2, he says, He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. If you say you're walking in the light, 
because you're practicing this precision obedience, but you hate your brother. And that means you're ugly towards your brother. That means you're disregarding your brother. That means that you're being mean and unkind towards your brother. You're in darkness. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, what do we do with this? How do we know that John isn't discussing precision obedience or this idea of ritualistic perfection? How do we know that's the case? Well, we look at Jesus as our blueprint. How did Jesus express love to others? How did Jesus show love? Because Jesus is the Son of God. He represents perfection in, in, in what we can try to attain, and he's our mark that we shoot for. How did Jesus express love? He didn't go around focusing on perfection. He focused on people and manifesting that fruit. He is that ultimate example that we follow to know what love is and how we express that fruit of the Spirit in our own spiritual lives and how we love one another well. Yeah, I like how you really broke it down about the presupposition when someone is telling you that they they are loving you or they are loving God. And they're demonstrating that by their what you call precision obedience, the idea that they're doing everything right, which is which is nothing but a works based salvation, because it's the idea that it's very it's very transactional. If I do everything I'm supposed to do, that means that I'm loving God and therefore God will love me and I'll go to heaven. And that whole belief system is refuted over and over and over in Scripture, not just through the meta narrative or the character arc or the narrative arc of Scripture, but through specific passages uh, through specific context. I mean, this is something that's just, it's refuted over and over and over again, yet we always kind of come back to that, <laughs> that this is this is what love is. Love is doing what it, what you're supposed to do. And I heard a story one day, and I, I, I don't know if this is true or not. A friend of mine was telling me about it, but he said that uh, there, he was, he had, he, he really took care of his yard. Uh, he, I mean, his yard was perfectly manicured and he hated dandelions, which to him were like the worst weed ever because he said, you know, it's just people, some people like it and, or some people think it's a flower. He goes, it's just, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's the ugly, it's the worst weed ever, you know, because it can disguise itself as a, as a flower. And uh, so he said that one day his daughter, who was at that time about six or seven years old, she was outside picking. Well, he thought she was just outside playing or playing around. He didn't know what she was doing. And she came in inside one day and she had picked all of these dandelions and wrapped them up in a bouquet and gave them to her dad. He said, Daddy, I've been working on these uh, for you all day to give you these these flowers. And he said what he at one time hated and couldn't stand now became something he absolutely adored and loved in that moment because yeah. of where, where it's coming from. And too often we forget that that's how God is. I mean, God is, God is much more interested in our hearts and what we're bringing to him than he is making sure we're picking the right flowers. He, he's making sure that we're doing our best to bring him what we think is the best. And we even see that. I don't want to get too far off track here, but we even see how God accommodates things such as animal sacrifice, something that later we found out that he despised in and of itself. He could also love it 
because culturally it was something he accommodated because that's how they understood they were supposed to be having a relationship with their God is through sacrifice because that's how all other ancient Near Eastern cultures did it. And so God had accommodated that practice. It's something he didn't, it wasn't his idea, but he accommodated it because that's how what everyone else was doing. And God always accommodates in that way, but he's accommodating ultimately so we can have that relationship with him. But I think the oppositely is also true. If my wife and I, if Bethany and I didn't have a good relationship at all, but come her birthday, I go out and buy her the most luxurious watch and spend thousands of dollars on it. Has, it has all these diamonds and, and I give it to her. It's going to hold no relational value, even though it's phenomenal. It's and she would hold- appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, and, and maybe not. not in, that, that in, in, yeah. in that sense, she may reject it and say, "Hey, this means nothing to me." Because well, no, no, that's true. Yeah, because of because of where it's going. And I think we do see God doing that often. Is that sometimes there are great things being brought to Him, but it means nothing to Him because ultimately where it's coming from. And so, when it comes to love, I think you started talking about this, and I want to continue this thread because if we're going to understand love we have to make sure we are defining what we mean by love. So if love means precision obedience, that's a different definition of love than what I believe to be proper love. And whenever you're talking to someone, when the concept of love is brought up, I think it's important to discuss, well, what do you think love is? To ask whoever you're discussing with, well, how do you understand love and why do you understand love in that way? Because I did understand love is this precision obedience. And the reason I left that understanding is because I started to realize that Jesus is the representation of love. In 1 John chapter 4, for example, the Bible says that God is love. Uh, 1 John, in fact, I want to read this. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. But here's how we can know what that looks like. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Well, this ties right back into the idea of the fruit of the spirit, what we are going to bear as image bearers of God. And so if God is love, and we can know God through Jesus Christ, or we can know uh, God through Jesus Christ, then we can also know and understand love through the example of Jesus Christ. And there are so many different stories and illustrations. You and I were talking about this before that we could use. But I encourage anyone, if they want to know who and what love is, to study the life of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, I believe that solidified and manifested in the resurrection or in the death of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I say the death is because that's even what John goes on to say, that it is through the resurrection that love is made manifest. Or excuse me, I keep saying resurrection. The crucifixion that love is made manifest. We can know how to love others 
through the love that is demonstrated on the cross. Jesus didn't destroy his enemies. Jesus died for his enemies. And while he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We talked about this several episodes ago when we talked about the Good Samaritan. What does love in action look like? Well, Jesus gave us parable after parable after parable. Look at the parables of the unforgiving servant. Who was the one wrong? The one who sinned and asked for forgiveness and was freely forgiven? No, that person was freely forgiven. That's the kind of love we are to have toward one another. It's not the kind of love that says, well, I'm not going to forgive you because you sinned against me and I'm going to hold that against you. That's the type of stuff Jesus is constantly teaching against. And so to understand love, we we have to start with the framework of Jesus Christ. But I don't think it's enough just to say Jesus. I think we have to go further and say his life and ultimately his crucifixion, what he did on the cross is the epitome and shows us what his love is. No, I think that's spot on. And to me, if, if we're going to define what love is, you know, there's a lot of folks that have an idea or perspective in their own mind of what love is, and they express their love differently in different ways of different people. You know, one of the most popular books on relationships ever written is called, you know, the five love languages. You probably heard of that book. You probably mm-hmm. read it. I've read it. And it has really informed and helped me to understand how people express love, how people receive love. And it's really, it really helped me understand love in terms of how we perceive it and how we express it in a much clearer way. And it helped me get over some of what I felt were slights and insults. I just realized that I wasn't receiving love that people were giving me because it wasn't my love language. It really helped me a lot. And for some people, their spiritual love language is that of ritualistic perfection and precision obedience, but that's not what love is. And the scriptural narrative bears that out. Like you said, we go back to Jesus and we see over and over again through his parables. One of the things that comes to mind, if we want to know, well, what is love? You know, what was one of the things Jesus said? If, you know, your children ask you for bread, are you going to give them a stone? If they ask for a gift, are you going to give them a serpent? That's an expression of what love is. You know, those of us that are married, we understand what love is. We understand that love goes way further than like what you said, buying expensive things for our spouses. If there is no relationship there to speak of, you know, one of the things that Kim has told me over again, you know, whenever we first started our business, dude, we were dirt poor. You know, I I mentioned this in like the first solo episode I ever did. Like we were at a point where. You know, I had to make a choice. Am I going to renew the tag on my car, which is paid for, and the tag is only like 30 bucks? Am I going to renew the tag on my car, or am I going to put gas in the tank so I can drive back and forth? If I put gas in my tank, well, I can drive back and forth, but my tag's out. If I go ahead and get my tag, I'm going to have to stay in Ardmore another four or five days until I have the money to buy gas. So I guess I'll just sleep at the office. You know, one of the things she said, because one of the ways I express love is, is I give to people. I love to give gifts. I love to, to give and to provide. And one of the things Kim said is, look, as long as you're okay, when I finally came out to her and told her how depressed I was and how I was feeling suicidal, she's like, you need to get help. I'm like, how we can't afford it. Um, but she said, you know, I just want you to know. I don't care if we're living in the car or in a tent out in the woods somewhere. As long as I have you, I'm happy. And dude, I broke down and bawled like a baby when she told me that. (laughs) But 
that's because we have a relationship with one another. We love each other. We appreciate each other. And deep down, we all know that's the case. Yeah. But, but Jesus himself demonstrates that love is not precision obedience in his narrative about love whenever he speaks in those parables. But there's a statement that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter five that proves that that's not the case. And I, th- I think you probably know where I'm going with this. In Matthew 5 and verse 23, where he's talking about love and how we treat one another, and to preface this or to as, as a precursor to this, he says, you know, you know, you say that if you call your brother, you know, a fool, you're in danger of hellfire, you know, or, or you're in danger of the council. But if you say racket to your brother or call him a fool, well, then you're in danger of this. Anyway, he says in verse 23, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled unto your brother and then come offer your gift. And if someone were to say, well, this is what love is, it's precision obedience, it's singing with acapella music, and it's um, ignoring, or, or rather not ignoring God's admonition that we need to use one cup in the Lord's Supper, and we need to be sure that we're putting money in the basket on the first day of the week, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure we're saying the right things when we baptize someone and, and making sure they're being baptized for the right reason and blah, 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 on and on and on it goes. Here Jesus takes that entire concept of precision obedience and he turns it on his head. You know, this, and he's speaking of the old law. He's speaking of that animal sacrifice that you referenced earlier. You know, they had a lot of rules that they had to follow for sacrifice and they were considered clean or unclean unless they offered the right sacrifice at the right time for the right reason. And this was very much a part of the fabric of their religious and spiritual life. And Jesus says, if you're there and you're at the altar and you're getting ready to make this sacrifice, he doesn't specify what it is, whether it's a sacrifice for sin or a sacrifice of atonement or, you know, one of those um, free will offerings and a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He doesn't say what it is, but if you're here and you're offering this sacrifice and you find out you have, your brother has something against you, be reconciled, have love and have harmony with one another above all else. That's akin to saying if you're sitting there and you're getting ready to take the communion and maybe you're in a cups congregation and, you know, the the preacher or the communicant says, you know, now let's offer bread and let's offer, you know, let's offer thanks for the bread. And you realize your brother has something against you. Leave your communion cup in the seat and you go resolve the issue. That's more important than the ritual. Yeah. From a one cup perspective, if the cup's passing you by and it comes to you and you learn or you remember that there's something wrong that you have not perfectly expressed that love for one another and there's something in the way of expressing that love, put the cup down and go resolve it. That's equivalent to what he's saying here in Matthew 5. If someone says, well, ritualistic perfection is the way we express our love for God, Jesus doesn't say that. He says that having harmony and having love with your brother is more important than the ritual. As I say, the ritual isn't important. It is important. But we have emphasized and overemphasized that so much that we have really, and I say we in terms of you and I from years ago and those that still hold to this idea, we've lost the narrative on what love is because it's been misidentified and misdefined for so long. No, you're you're exactly right. And when it comes to the idea of what love looks like on top of just saying Jesus, Jesus himself said that we should treat others the way that we want to be treated. And 
that is the definition of love in layman's terms. If someone were to ask me, well, Kevin, what do you mean to you need to love someone? I would say, well, you need to treat them the way that you want to be treated. And of course, today we've 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 kind of tried to get um, a little cutesy with it and say, well, you need to treat people the way they want to be treated. It's like, well, that's that was Jesus point. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. the, the, the whole the whole point is that Jesus is making is that whatever you would want people to do to you, that's what he said, you need to do to, to them. And so you, the, the way that we know how to love other people is through relationship, is by getting to know them. And when it comes to loving God, and I this took me a long time to figure out. It was such a simple concept, but it took me a long time to figure out. And when I was reading First John, it just hit me. I never had thought of it. And you had read this earlier that how do we know if we love God? Well, if we love our brothers and sisters, if we love our fellow human beings, that is the demonstration and the manifestation of if we're loving God. It's not going to church. That, 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 that's part of your relationship with God, having church community, no doubt. Of course it is. But that's not the the way in which love is is manifested love is manifested the way that people can know if we love god is if we're loving one of one another and if we're loving one another the way jesus loved us jesus was sitting washing on the ground on his hands and knees washing his disciples dirty feet jesus said i came to serve not to be served that's what love is love is serving it's, it's not seeking to, to be served. It's wanting to serve others. Love is treating other people ultimately the way we want to be treated. And in 2 John 1, 6, John says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. But what commandment is it? This is the very commandment you've heard, that you must walk in Love And so people want to quote all these passages about, well, you've got to keep the commands of God. You have to keep the commands of Jesus. And that's true. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, 14, you're my friends. If you do whatever I command you. What happens is people don't read the rest of those chapters to realize that those verses are smack dab in the middle of the commands being loving God and loving other people. That's what the command is. And John says that in 2 John 1, 6. This is the command. Which one is it? This one. You must walk in love. You need to love other people. You need to treat people the way you want to be treated. And it's right there in the Gospel of John. John chapter 15, 12, John 13, 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you should love one another. The new command was not for them to love one another. The Torah commanded that that the Jews love one another the that wasn't new love was always part of the law what was new is that caveat as i have loved you so jesus said look you're always supposed to love but i actually came i'm god and i came in flesh to show you what it looks like to love one another. I'm going to love you, and the way I love you, you need to reciprocate that, and you need to love other people the way that I've loved you. 
Well, I'm so glad that you said that because that's a point I definitely wanted us to make. And you just did so beautifully. You know, it, you know one of the things that it, it was a conversation that I had with a, with a brother when I began to um, more publicly express some of the doubts that I had with a paradigm that I was moving in. And, and you and I talked about this a little over a year ago. And, you know, this brother, he had he had written a tract and the title of the tract is, Do You Love God? And that's that's a provocative title. That's a really good title because that's going to catch attention. And the thrust of the tract was, is you love God by keeping his commandments. And well, then that asks the question, well, what are the commandments? Well, the commandments are you worship on the first day of every week. You make sure that you're baptized for the remission of sins for the right reason in the right way. You know, you make sure that you you observe all of these rituals the right way. And that was the thrust of it. And dude, I know for a fact you used to quote those scriptures that you just quoted out of their context because I used to do the same thing. Loving God means you keep his commandments. You keep the commandments. And those commandments are no instrumental music, no this, no that, yes, this, yes. you, You get it, man. I mean, that's what this whole point is. But Jesus tells us in context what that love is. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. And in further detail, Paul, he goes into this in 1 Corinthians 13, which is a really popular passage. This is a passage that is often read at weddings. Anytime someone speaks about love or preaches about love, this is always a passage that's read. And you may have wanted to get to this at some point, but I'm going to go ahead and go there now. Yep, I have it pulled up, man. Go ahead, because I I was going to go there next. I knew you were going there, baby. We're tracking together. I like it, man. I like it. But in this discourse, right now, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts with the church in Corinth. He's been going through because they were at each other's throat. They were um, envying one another's gifts, whether they had the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, gift of healing, the gift of interpretation, whatever else. These miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, they were arguing about it. And the Apostle Paul was saying, look, if you're going to desire any of these gifts, yeah, tongues are good. And I know you guys want that gift, but prophecy is better. But there's something even better than all this that you guys are forgetting about. He says, love is better than everything else. And the final verse of of chapter 12 says, I show you a more excellent way. And then in uh, chapter 13 and verse one, he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I speak with the tongues of men, if I speak with the tongues of angels, if I speak a heavenly language that the divine themselves use, but if I don't have love in my heart, all I'm doing is making noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, if I have all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Marvel superheroes are huge right now. I mean, how amazing would it be to have enough faith to be able to literally point at a mountain and say, be cast into the sea, and that mountain uproots itself and flies through the air and goes into the ocean? That'd be amazing. Paul says, yeah, that would be amazing, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. If I can do that, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And though, in verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. What he's saying there is that good deeds divorced from love are meaningless. Yeah, you may help someone out in the short term. Yeah, you may clothe someone who's poor, feed someone who's hungry. But if you're doing that for any other any other reason than altruism, if you're doing it because you expect you're going to receive something in return, that's not love. If you're doing it because it's an obligation, obligation is not godly. That is not love. Yeah, that verse three, I, I want to make just, if it's okay, a couple comments on that. Because Do it, brother. 
this is a powerful, powerful verse. Not only, as you pointed out, does it show that love is not synonymous with precision obedience, because if it was, then if someone did die for the cause of Christ, they would have to go to heaven because that means that they loved God. And uh, if, if that was they died for the cause of Christ, then hey, that's that's the epitome of love. But yet Paul says that's not the case. I mean, think about that for a moment. Yeah. I'm sure Paul here is speaking theoretically, but his his point is that even if you were to die for the cause of Christ, that in and of itself does not mean that you have love. So that means obedience is not always a sign of love. And people say, well, yeah, but you have to have obedience in order to love God. But then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan that brings in a Samaritan into eternal life. Well, clearly he's not obedient because Jesus in John 4 said, verse 17 through 19, Jesus to the Y'all even uh, know what you're worshiping. The Samaritans, only the Jews know what they worship. The Samaritans at that point, you don't know who or what you're worshiping. And so Jesus takes this idea of precision obedience and he turns it on its head. And then Paul continues that thread by saying, even if you were to do something like die for Jesus, that in and of itself does not necessarily mean that you had love. But second of all, another point I wanted to bring out that I just think might be interesting to our audience, and this this might be something you're familiar with, I'm not sure, but many of the early church fathers believed that after you were baptized, if you sinned more than once, you could no longer be forgiven. So they, we've talked about this, I think, a little bit. But yeah. there were, and I said many, there were some early church fathers who believed that. Um, and, and Tertullian, he went as far to say that you didn't even have an opportunity after you were baptized. If you sinned, that was it, because they considered that continuing in sin. Um, we can unpack that another time because it's very interesting. But they believed even though they had that strict, strict, strict legalistic idea of a relationship with God, they went as far, most of the early church, many of the early church fathers went as far to say, if you died for the cause of Christ, you would automatically be saved. So no matter what you did prior, even even though under normal circumstances you couldn't be forgiven, if you die for the cause of Christ, that literally locks you into heaven. Of course, they didn't say it that way, but that's that's what they meant. That's what they believed. And so it was. it's interesting that Paul is already refuting an idea that would later come to be prominent. This idea that, well, as long as you die for the cause of Christ, you're going to heaven. And that's why a lot of uh, Christians... Were, were big into martyrdom. They were trying to die. Ignatius, in fact, he was upset when he got a letter from some Christians saying, we're praying for you because he saw that he saw that as them interfering with his faithfulness to be able to die for the cause of Christ. They, they got obsessed with this stuff. And Paul's point is, you guys are missing the boat. Like this is, it's not about, well, who's the first who can die or who can be tortured the most for Jesus? You're missing the point. The point is, you need to love other people. You need to build 
good character. You need to focus on your person, on your character, on your heart, who you are, not all of these externals. You need to be focusing on the internals. And when you do that, the externals will take care of themselves. And even then, that doesn't mean you're always going to do everything right. That doesn't mean you're always going to get all the right answers or do everything properly. But it does mean that everything you're doing is coming from ultimately the proper place because you've been focusing on the heart. You've been focusing on love. No, that, I think that's beautifully said. And that's an excellent summation of verse three because it, it's true. I mean, you can sacrifice yourself. You can give your body to be burned, Paul says. But if you don't have love, it does you no good. And another wrinkle, because I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about these first three verses. I'm so glad that you shared what you did on verse three because you put it way better than I could have. But one of the things that I noticed whenever I was thinking about this concept is in terms of spiritual gifts, where he speaks of speaking in tongues and he's talking about the gift of prophecy. He's not saying that these people are not Christians. I mean, it's widely known and it's it's not unanimously agreed upon, but it's widely believed that these gifts of the Spirit were manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit that Christians could utilize to effectively minister for the church. The ability to be able to speak in languages they had never studied, the ability, the ability to prophesy or preach and reveal truth that God had revealed directly to them. It's something that existed... He's speaking of people that are in Christ. He's yeah. speaking of people that are Christians here. These are people that are saved people. He's saying that the gifts of the Spirit themselves, and this really you know, preaches to those of a Pentecostal background, because in, in most Pentecostal circles, you have to have a manifestation of the gifts of the spirit in order for your salvation to quote, be verified. Hmm, so, yeah. you know, once you obey the gospel and once you're baptized, well, then you have to speak in tongues to prove that you've actually been saved. And unless you speak in tongues, well, then you're probably not really saved. That's a perspective that exists in a lot of Pentecostal circles. It's not something I really ever bought into, even when I was Pentecostal. But in this, it's really interesting that the Apostle Paul says you can speak with tongues all you want. You can prophesy and understand all mysteries and have everything revealed to you. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. The Holy Spirit can move on you, in other words. The Holy Spirit can impart these gifts to you. And whether those gifts perpetuate today or not, that's not what we're talking about. But even if we suppose they are, let's just suppose they do for the sake of this discussion. If you don't have love, none of that means anything. It means nothing. Love is the highest ethic revealed in Scripture. It's the first enumerated in Galatians 5 is the gifts of the Spirit. And then Paul goes on to tell us what love is. We talked a lot about what love is not. And we spent some time tonight talking about what love is and how Jesus exemplifies that in his life, in his crucifixion, in his parables, and just in how he interacted with people. But if you're looking for a list, because I know a lot of people like lists, you liked them, I liked them. The Apostle Paul tells us what love is. In verse 4, he says, love suffers long or is patient and love is kind. Is it kind to tell someone that they're going to hell? No, it isn't. So if I say, well, Kevin, I love you and I appreciate you, but you're using multiple cups or you haven't been baptized for the remission of your sins. You don't believe the right thing or have the right idea about the Godhead. So you're going to hell. That's not kind. Love is patient and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not boastful. It's not puffed up. 
Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. And man, that right there hits me right between the eyes because I am still (laughs) easily provoked in some ways. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that's really the second part of the answer to the question that you asked a while ago in this episode. How would you answer someone that says, well, I'm just speaking the truth and I'm telling people that their souls are lost if they don't do X, Y, or Z? I would say, well, I think the Apostle Paul disagrees with you. Because love is kind, it doesn't parade itself, it's not puffed up, and it doesn't behave rudely. And if and that right there tells us that love and those expressions of love in and of themselves can be culturally situated. You know, in America, you clean your plate whenever you're offered food, especially in the South, that's considered proper. If you leave food behind, it makes it look like you didn't like the food and it can be an insult. But if you go over into the East, if you go into China or you go to Japan or Korea, if you clean your plate, that's an insult. That's not showing love to clean your plate. You need to leave a little bit of food behind because it's considered rude. You're telling the host that they didn't feed you enough. So even then you see just a a kind of a cheap, quick example of how love in and of itself and its expression can be culturally situated. Love does not behave rudely, and what's rude in one culture may be considered polite in another. Love doesn't seek its own good. It seeks the best good of others. It's not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It's This describes and tells us what love is. We get a holistic vision of what the full expression of that first fruit of the Spirit, love, is is when we look at Jesus and we look at how Paul contrasts love with what it is with what it isn't. And in that, we get a full holistic picture of what love is. And even then, it makes sense to us of what it means to put love into action in our own lives. It's not some nebulous thing that's hard to understand. It's not some frou-frou thing that is just, oh, some feeling in our hearts. No, there's real action that we put into practice. But what we see for sure that love is not is ritualistic perfection or precision obedience to this concept of a set of doctrinal rules or principles that we have to follow. Love is what it is. And the scriptures declare what that is through Jesus and through Paul himself. Well said, man. And I I just before we conclude, I just want to add one more thing because there's so many different directions we can take this and we probably will in other episodes. This is just a, an overview as we talk about the different ways that we should understand uh, or that we understand the fruit of the spirit. And when it comes to love, you put it, you put it, I think just in a very easy plain way when you said that the way in which love manifests itself may change from situation to situation and culture and culture, but the spirit of love itself doesn't change. And I think that's why there's not a list because it, it, situations change, cultures change, perspectives change. And during that, we can still keep the fruit of the spirit. We can still be loving, but the way that that's going to manifest itself may look very different from culture to culture, situation to situation, or person to person. That's why relationships are so important. And we have to get to know one another so that we can know, okay, well, how how am I to love you better? 
how how can I be more patient and how can I make sure I'm not being rude? How can I make sure that I'm uh, bearing all things and believing all things and hoping all things? How can I make sure that when I'm around you, I, I'm demonstrating love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And work with each person on their own level. Even Paul himself said, I became all things to all men. To those under the law, I became like those under the law. To those who were without law, to those without law. To those who were Jews, I became a Jew. To the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. To the slave, slave. To the free, free. Paul was not saying I'm a chameleon who has no conviction. He's saying that my conviction is doing my best to serve people on their own level. And that's what love does. Love says, I'm going to become all things to all men. And guess what? Jesus did not only become all things to all men, he became a man. He became human yes. so, that, so that he could show us. I mean, the ultimate accommodation is Jesus coming in the flesh so that we could get to know him. As John said, Jesus came, we, we saw him, we touched him with our own eyes, we walked with him. He was flesh, we, he, he came in the likeness of man. And so when we understand that, we quit looking for a list of do's and don'ts and check marks, and we start looking for characteristics. We start looking for the spirit, the intent of these things. How they manifest may be different different times, different people, different situations, et cetera, et cetera. But the spirit, the intent, that never changes. That character never changes. And that's why it's so important that we understand love through the eyes of Jesus Christ, not through our own human lens. Amen, brother. Well, I think that pretty well covers it. I, I think this has been an excellent discussion and a great introduction to that first fruit of the spirit, which is love. And as we conclude tonight, we just want to say that we love all of you. And we don't say that, you know, sarcastically or anything like that. Kevin and I genuinely love our audience. We really do love you guys. We appreciate all of you. We love hearing from you guys. And anyway, drop us a line, email us, you know, send us an email. If you have any topics that you would like to suggest, if you have any struggles, if you just like prayer, holler at us. We try to answer back everybody. Sometimes it can take a little bit of time before we get to you. We're both pretty busy, but we do what we can to get back to everyone. We appreciate you all and we love you all. And that's really the driving force behind this podcast and why we keep doing it is because we love this stuff and we love being able to share our journey with people who are going through similar journeys of faith. We, you know, we love being able to be honest with people and forthright about where we have struggled. And I know I can freely admit that I have struggled in knowing what love is and how to love like Jesus. And it's taken a while to wrap my head around that. And it's way easier to understand it. And it's a whole lot harder to put it into practice. So we really hope that this episode has been helpful to you all. We appreciate you all. We really do love you all. Um, show us your love for us by giving us that five-star review on iTunes and whatever platform you're using. Show us that love by sharing this podcast with others, because unless you do that, you don't really love us. So ha ha ha. Now, now that's sarcasm. But in any case, <laughs> we do love you all. We wish you all a good night and thank you all once again. <laughs>